Here's how to start building your very own privatized banking system. Hello and welcome to the Durham Talents Channel. My name is Jesse Durham. We're back for another installation in our book review series where we are covering R. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. We are in part three, the very beginning of part three. This is really going to feel like the rubber meeting the road. This is the section of the book starting at page 41 going through 47. It's titled part three, how to start building your banking system. Now let me give, let me give some prefacing information here that I think is going to be important. As we go through this section of the book, you're really going to feel like the rubber is meeting the road here. Uh, many of you have just been, I mean, you've, you've, you've might not, you might not even have read the first 40 pages without flipping through some of the book. I know how y'all are. You're, you're wanting to get to the numbers. I know there are plenty of those folks out there. I talk with plenty of those folks. And they're saying, Jesse, just just tell me the numbers. And they're asking questions about premium and policies, etc. Well, I have it on, you know, the authority of folks that personally knew Nelson and personally learned from Nelson. I have to say it that way because I never got to personally meet Nelson. But it's been said by folks like James Nethery and others that that personally know Nelson that if he were to rewrite Becoming Your Own Banker, he wouldn't have put in the illustrations. And I'm just mentioning that here and now, even though we're making a book review series here, because, again, if I could reference James Nethery, someone who personally knew Nash, who personally learned this infinite banking concept from R. Nelson Nash, I've heard James say that when you understand the concepts, the details don't matter. And if you don't, understand the concepts the details don't matter did you follow me on that the big thing the emphasis the crux our point of focus needs to be the concepts remember this is called the infinite banking concept so should we get to the numbers are we going to get to the numbers yes have numbers changed from what you can see in this book when it was written in 2000 Yes, but that's not the point. The point is we're going to be focusing on the principles behind this idea of becoming your own banker because those hold true today. So that's a bit of preferencing. I mean, Nash even came back. You can see on page 44, this is his fifth edition of, of the book. He wrote an addendum. So we're going to dive in on this information right here. And I just, I'm not going to necessarily cover the illustrations line by line number by number because what i think we will focus on and and please feel free to let me know feedback you can contact me and let me know feedback you can put uh, comments and reviews etc where, wherever you would like i'm going to focus on the concepts because that's what i've found to be true in my own personal experience as well we've been practicing this infinite banking concept for eight years at this point my wife and i have built a system of policies we've used our policies to recapture debt to finance things in the family and we're going to talk today about how to start building your own banking system now again when nash starts this section he reiterates the, the, the stark importance of not glossing over the human problems and getting right to mathematics. 
Because while math may be true, and the example that he gives is folks might want to jump right to a home mortgage, for example, because when you see what the volume, again, not rate, we're going to look at the volume of interest that is paid on mortgages. For example, mathematically, it's a massive, massive amount of interest that's being paid out. And again, when you when you when you couple that with the reality that maybe every five or seven or so many years, folks are moving and they're restarting that process of 15 or 30 years if they're doing a conventional mortgage of paying the biggest amount, the greatest amount of interest at the beginning all over again. So mathematically, we might would want to start with something like a mortgage. Nash advises us to start smaller. And this does bring us to the topic of even premiums. You know, folks will ask me sometimes what type of premium they should be paying. How much premium should they be paying when they are ready to start building their own banking system? And everybody's different. And I'm going to say we need to look at your particular financial situation again. I have cars. You probably have cars. We have cars. So that's the example that we're going to cover in this particular segment because it's such an applicable, great example. But everybody's situation, everybody's financial footprint is different. And it's my belief that you should arrive at knowing what is an appropriate amount of premium for you, whether this is you considering getting your first policy or adding onto a system of policies. Again, when you have that end game knowledge of eventually in income should be equal to premiums paid, then you just know that you're going to be building up to that point. But you don't start there. And again, as you get more of the snakes and dragons out of your life, as Nash would say, the conventional banks and etc., then you're going to have more to be able to put towards your privatized banking system. Now, let's begin again by reiterating this is a lifestyle change, becoming your own banker. Start small enough. The, the words I use are the same words that I picked up out of Nash's book. When I'm talking premium with a prospective client or client, I will use the words, well, you should be considering a premium that is reasonable for you, that is logical for you. Remember those four words that Nash would say are integral and even considering this exercise of becoming your own banker. He would say, it's going to be an exercise in reason, logic, prophecy, and imagination. So when I'm talking premiums with prospective clients and clients, I will ask them what they think is a reasonable number, conservative number, logical number. And then I might also ask, well, what's a number that is a stretch for you? It's ambitious for you. It is imaginative for you. It maybe raises your eyebrows or causes your spouse to question your sanity. So somewhere between those two, a really small and conservative number and a much bigger ambitious number, somewhere between those two is going to be a good mixture of being reasonable, logical, and yet imaginative for you. Well, cars. Again, we drive them, you drive them. Let's look at the honest ways of procuring a vehicle's use. So if we're taking theft off of the table and we're going to say, well, okay, you could go out for cars and lease, you could 
conventionally financed. You could pay cash. You could use some kind of conventional financial product, uh, whether he uses a CD in, in his book, so that's what we will talk about. But whether, whether that is a money market account that earns some interest or a CD or, or what have you, some conventional financial entity or product, and then we're going to get to the infinite banking concept. So if we're saying that, well, let's not bite off more than we can chew. Let's not start with a mortgage on the home. Let's start with something smaller. We're going to run through this car example. Because again, if I just asked you now, and this doesn't matter if you're in your first car or your 10th car, it doesn't matter. What if you could have all the money back? for the cars that you have bought. How happy would you be if you had all the money back for all the cars that you've ever bought? Right, well, here we are, Jesse. And I hear that too, Jesse. I wish I'd have heard about this five years ago, 35 years ago, what have you. Well, we know about it today, or we're at least learning about it today. Let me ask the futuristic version of that question, which is, what if you could buy all the cars that you're going to buy anyway? but you could also get the money back. How happy would you be if you could also buy the cars that you're going to buy anyway and get the money back? So it's a good thing to consider. But let's walk through. These are viable options. People lease cars. All right, so on this spectrum, and Nash does give figure one on page 41, a graph showing mo most expensive uh, all the way up to the most profitable for us as the consumer. So leasing the cars, just to put a couple of logical conclusions out there, we must recognize that if we're leasing a vehicle and that is a business and that business is seeking to be profitable and when we realize that the consumer, the customer pays for everything, then we must know that this is an expensive way of having the use of a vehicle. Nash said it's the most expensive. It's very profitable for the owner of that business, which is not us. We are the consumer in that scenario. And furthermore, another point is equity. We do not have any equity in that relationship, in that situation. We are just leasing the vehicle. So suffice it to say, leasing a vehicle is very profitable for the owner. And that's important to recognize because if we could ever put ourselves in the position of ownership over the banking function, it can be very, very profitable for us. Next is going to be conventional finance. This is very easy to calculate mathematically. You could take a certain number that you're going to pay for the car, a certain amount of interest, calculate that amortizing over, let's say, a five-year period. It's really simple math. And again, you're already noticing. I'm, I'm not necessarily throwing numbers out there. Maybe I'll put some things up on the screen for those that are watching the video version of this information. But again, when you realize that when you conventionally finance a vehicle, that you are not just getting the vehicle, you are, you are paying for the financing of that vehicle. I mean, side note, feel free to go up and look at any information of how profitable the financial arms of the big automobile companies are out there. Okay, so what I'm saying is the, the Ford, the Chryslers, the GMs, all those big companies, 
see what kind of revenue is being created by the finance arm of that company. I'm just saying. So conventional finance is easy to calculate. Once it is paid for, we can, we can keep it, we can trade it, we can sell it. So th th there is that. Of course, during that time frame, that vehicle is the collateral for, for the financing. But once it is paid for, we can sell it, trade it, keep it. And then when we do need another vehicle, we start that process all over again of paying very high volumes. Again, I'm not talking about rates. This isn't about rates. We need to be looking at the volume of interest that we pay by conventionally financing things. But that's conventional finance. Next is going to be cash. So cash still is a financing method with payments. This, this is going to be a big aha if you're open-minded enough. This is going to be a big aha moment if you've never considered this. When you are putting cash under the mattress, in a coffee can, in a savings account, in a money market account, if you're just setting money aside in a bank or something, you're making payments. You are making payments by deferring purchase. Okay, you're, you're waiting to purchase until you have enough to liquidate and go out and buy cash, what you want. But you are still making payments. So for those folks out there that are saying, well, I pay cash for everything. I don't want to have payments. You have payments. Everything is financed. Okay, everything is fine. I mean, these are the options. Uh, these are the honest options. If we're not stealing cars, then we can lease cars. We can conventionally finance cars. We can pay cash. And if you're paying cash, you're making payments somewhere under the mattress, in the coffee can, at a savings account, at a conventional bank. Payments are still being made. Furthermore, you do have to defer the use of that car, I don't know, maybe you save for a year, maybe you save for five years to be able to buy your next car, but you're deferring the use. And I'm just going to ask us to consider where are we making those payments? Now, again, I'm not saying don't pay cash. Paying cash and foregoing paying volumes of interest to the conventional lenders is fantastic, but we need to consider where is it that we are putting our capital expecting to be able to access it for paying cash for a vehicle when we want. Where are we putting it? Do we own that entity? Is there protection against inflation in that entity? Is there protection against litigation or taxation? Is there or is there not growth that we could be Receiving, what does the access look like? I mean, there are just lots of questions that we should ask, whether that's a mattress, whether that's a coffee can, whether that's a savings account, whether that's a money market account, what have you. Payments are still being made. Deferment still takes place for using a vehicle, and we should be asking where we are putting that cash. Next, let's just use Nash's example of a CD. Again, I think there are other entities, other products that we could consider here. But let's run with the CD example. For all those other examples, we have yet to talk about capitalization. Here we're going to talk about capitalization. This CD, Certificate of Deposit, at a conventional bank, is a product. 
it's a financial entity, okay? And we're going to capitalize there for a certain period of time. Maybe this is a one-year CD, a seven-year CD, whatever the case may be. This capitalization concept is very important, and the tieback that I'm going to make is to our grocery store example. Remember, there's no grocer out there who's saying, oh man, I wish we didn't have so much product on our shelves. I wish we didn't have so many shelves full of capital, full of product, full of capital. So this capitalization is taking place with a CD. Furthermore, Nash references a Dartmouth business professor, James Brian Quinn, who talks about a seven-year capitalization phase, talking about you should anticipate capitalizing a brand new business if you want to be successful. If you want to be successful, capitalizing a business for at least seven years. Now, Nash, at one point, I believe it's in this chapter, he says, yes, he says on, on page 41, uh, I believe it's 41, capitalizing for for a minimum of four years. Now, again, here's where I'm going to go back to my prefacing statement that every situation is different. Once you realize that you can own a privatized banking system, my question is, how long would you want to be able to make deposits how long would you want to be able to pay premiums into this appreciating asset that you're going to own and control for your whole lifetime? Personally, I've never made too many deposits into any of my accounts. So again, capitalization phase, it is, it's not for the life of the policy. It's not for the lifetime of a successful business. Whether it's four years, ten years, seven years, whatever the case may be, there is a capitalization phase. We should anticipate that it will be some years if we're going to be successful in this business. And that is the way to look at a policy. That is the way to look at a brand new policy or an addition to your privatized banking system with another policy. Is It's a brand new business. Again, but we're still on CD. So, the Dartmouth professor said seven-year capitalization. And at this point, let me reiterate what Nash says in his book, and that is simply that just by beating Parkinson's law, being willing to capitalize for seven years, while the vast majority of Americans are not, you're just going to win by default. We've not begun to talk about IBC yet. At this point, we're still just talking about CDs, okay? This is not optimal, and we're going to see that. But at this point, if someone is addressing, confronting, and conquering Parkinson's law, and their peer is not, you're just going to win by default. Now, some other points of consideration with a CD, or a like entity, is when you do make withdrawals, you're forever losing the future potential of that capital. You're interrupting what could have happened, and furthermore, you don't have that principle anymore to create powerful compound interest. So withdrawals is going to be very different than what we're going to talk about in a second, which is eventually working up to policy loans. Loans from mutual life insurance companies that pay dividends, wherein we are owners of properly structured 
whole life policies with those mutual companies that pay dividends. Now, Nash in his book, let me go ahead and say now, just in case I forget to in a moment, he actually shows in his examples withdrawals. And that is not, again, not optimal. But he was showing the most conservative example that he could think of by showing withdrawals instead of policy loans. And, and that's so important to note. And it's nice to know and it's important to know that as the owner of such a policy, you can do either. <laughs> Again, this, this is all about becoming your own banker. If you want to make withdrawals, make withdrawals. If you want to make policy loans, make policy loans. And there are times where each of those are going to make sense. But in general, when you realize that by using policy loans, and I know I'm jumping ahead. I'm still supposed to be on CDs here. But by jumping, but, so I'm jumping ahead, but by using policy loans, you're foregoing interrupting the compounding on your capital. Because when you make a withdrawal, whether it's from a CD or from a policy, you are, you are losing power on that capital. Okay, so, and where is this CD at? This CD is in somebody else's bank. You don't own it. It's, it's that simple. You are, you are capitalizing in someone else's business, someone else's commercial bank. And that bank is profitable, and they pay dividends just not to you and me. They pay dividends to the owners. So the issues of access, control, dividends, they're important. They're impo there are several different things that we should be considering. And, and, and lastly, before we do jump to the IBC method, what Nash called method E, because we've covered leasing, conventionally financing, paying cash, using something like a CD, some other conventional financial tool. Now we're going to get to IBC, but first let me reiterate that Nash said we need to know who the characters are in the play. Why am I reiterating that? We need to know who the characters are in the play because if we owned a CD, someone owns that bank that we have that CD with. And again, look at the name. It's a certificate of deposit. We're depositing into someone else's banking system. You can become your own banker. You can be capitalizing in your own privatized banking system. So recognize who the characters are in the play. And when you do, you will also see that the borrower or the consumer or the customer pays for everything. Again, look at the conventional banking system. Aren't those the nicest buildings in the nicest parts of the town with best-dressed people, well-maintained grounds? Okay, the consumer, the customer, the borrower pays for that. The consumer pays for everything. Now, let me say, by all means, I'm going to encourage you, and I know you're listening to a book, book review, but by all means, go back and read Nash's book. Again, focus on the concepts, not the details like the numbers or the illustrations. But likewise, look through these illustrations, look through these numbers, look through these differences numerically, go to the numbers and see what Nash is showing. And just understand, if it's more, if it's less, you're the banker. So understand the relationships of what's, what's happening, but by all means, go through and look at these numbers. 
I'm making a pointed focus of evaluating. There are only a handful of ways to go about procuring the use of cars. And once we, by process of elimination, say, well, I don't want to use those more expensive ways of, of using and having and, and, and borrowing for cars. Okay, so I don't, I don't want to lease a car. I don't want to conventionally finance a car, do business with banks. Don't do business with banks. I, I do care about control. I don't want the uh, to bank have me provide this kind of collateral and down payments and all these different. And you do get to wanting to be independently autonomous, autonomously, financially free in controlling, profiting from the banking function. It leads us to infinite banking. All right. Let's talk about this infinite banking way of getting vehicles. Again, it's like starting a brand new business. If we are going to start a brand new business, we must understand the need to capitalize. Capitalization is what makes this process work. We're also going to have the benefit of ownership in this option of procuring cars, of course. So, so not only will we own the car outright if we finance it from a properly structured whole life policy with a mutual company that pays dividends, but we're the owner of that financing entity as well. And where's the collateral? I mean, since I've already brought up the issue of collateral, well, the collateral is the death benefit. It's a perfectly collateralized banking entity that allows us to finance the car for ourselves. So just amazing. So there's capitalization to consider ownership. The insurance company, this is important. This is helpful to understand. The insurance company is what Nash would call the hired help. See, the commercial banking system has the hired help. The loan officers, the vice presidents, the tellers, etc. People that answer the phone. So the insurance companies are the same. They have people that answer the phone. They have the vice presidents and, and et cetera. And Nash would even go, go on to say that you could take a vice president from a commercial bank and from an insurance company and swap them every six months. And they're going to be interchangeable in, in, in what they are doing in running that organization, which is an interesting thought. So the hired help he was pointing out is going to be a wash between evaluating which one of these options do I want to utilize for procuring vehicles for myself because the hired help is a wash. Now, the difference, of course, is that when you are a policy owner, the mutual company, with the mutual company, you're part owner of that company. So that's a beautiful thing. But the hired help or the administrators is, is a wash. Now, there are lots of things that come into the characteristics of pointing a properly structured policy as the superior asset because, well, beyond financing vehicles over your lifetime for yourself, you can be creating a future passive income. So into the future, you could be creating a, a passive income for yourself that you can access tax-free just by financing your vehicles over your lifetime for yourself as well. So th that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen with, with these, these other options, of course, that you could be creating a, a tax-free 
passive income for yourself later on by financing vehicles for yourself. And then, of course, when you take into account the interest that you're going to save and furthermore, what kind of productivity that that interest can provide for you into the future, dividends, again, being with mutual life insurance companies, there are dividends to consider. Those are not guaranteed. But again, when you're talking about insurance companies that have been paying dividends for well over 100 years, that's a track record for sure. And if you're being an honest banker, and I don't want to gloss over that, if you're being an honest banker by financing your vehicles yourself with the IBC way, then you're going to be giving market rates. I did already mention interest, but you're going to be giving market rates because capital has a cost to it. This is your banking system. This is your capital. Give a true market cost. Be an honest banker. Don't steal the peas. Give a true market cost to the capital. And again, you can use policy loans more profitably than withdrawals. Nash illustrates with withdrawals. So this could be even better than it is illustrated. And again, Nash just recognized that there's a lot of prejudiced, preconceived, and even propagandized financial information that we're just inundated with. I mean, we're literally born into financial slavery because of the conventional banking system. So for those folks out there that are just so hesitant to even use the word loan or borrow, again, you can be your own banker. You don't have to take policy loans. If you want to make withdrawals, you can make withdrawals. That's fine. It's not optimal. That's all I'm pointing out here is it's not optimal. But you can be your own banker, so choose for yourself. I take policy loans when I'm financing something. That's what I do. Now, again, later on in life, will it behoove you? Let me go ahead and walk this out even though we'll get to it later, will it behoove you to take withdrawals up to your cost basis when you're ready for passive income? Sure, sure. And then from there, take policy loans for continued passive income beyond your cost basis just to be able to maintain the most favorable tax status on using a policy? Absolutely. Absolutely. But Nash's examples do show withdrawals. It would be even better with policy loans. Now, when you're doing financing this way, you're going to have, and again, I'll reference you back to figure one on page 41 where Nash is showing his chart. Okay, over here, leasing conventional financing, it's the most expensive side of how to procure vehicles. And uh, then on the opposite side, you're seeing that tailwind. Nash was talking about, you know, all these other examples are showing you the headwind, the financial headwind that everyone is facing, the bleeding out of interest dollars to the conventional banking system. Whereas with the IBC method, you've got a continual and a perpetual, a constant and a strong tailwind that's forcing you forwards because of the environment that you are operating in. And that's a beautiful thing, and that pans out in the numbers that you can see here on these different charts and examples and illustrations that he is showing. Now, I do want to address, because Nash mentions it in his book, 
that there are so many conventional financial gurus out there that will say life insurance is a poor place to put money. Payday lender of the middle class. And I've covered a lot of those types of quotes. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a quotes series on all of our channels where I cover quotes just like that one. So whether it's making bank or money doesn't grow on trees or no free lunch. I mean, there are several of them. I'd encourage you to check that out if that interests you. And I think there's value in considering the things that we bring to the table, whether we recognize or not, that are that are up in our minds and in our thinking about personal finance. Quotes like that are worth evaluating. In particular, this one right here, right now. Life insurance is a poor place to accumulate wealth. Interesting. Interesting observation. You know, there are lots of thoughts that I have (laughs) to confront that way of thinking. I'll give you some of them. One could be, who is the largest purchaser of whole life? Commercial banks. So the same folks that are telling you, well, do this, do that, about personal finance. And then they will completely ignore because they're either not aware of it or maybe they have vested interests interests elsewhere um, they will they will purposely overlook it the banking function in your life but what are banks doing well banks are the largest purchasers of whole life insurance it's called boli bank owned life insurance research that I, I encourage you to so the banks are doing it so i'm just saying it's worth you know, paying attention to Presidents buy it. Universities buy it. The Rockefellers, Stanford University, Walt Disney, the Pampered Chef, J.C. Penney, Warren Buffett. It's a very old product. I mean, when you compare that with mutual funds and, and lots of other things, I mean, there's been a much larger test of time that whole life insurance has passed. And when you look at these companies that have been able to provide guaranteed death benefit while also providing a dividend for well over 100 years consecutively without missing a year. And just think about the history that's taken place during that time frame. I just don't know that that's the case. Now, it certainly does matter who you work with. See, if you're still in the vetting process, if you're still learning about this infinite banking concept, it matters who you work with. It matters what kind of a policy you get with which company or companies, how that policy is structured for you. I'm saying that because it should be structured for you. But if you're going to a box store agent and getting a box store product where you're just getting a quote for the lowest premium and the greatest coverage, that, that's not what we're talking here. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about properly structured whole life policies with mutual companies that pay dividends that you can use to become your own banker by creating your own privatized banking system. So I did want to at least briefly address Nash quoting someone else's quote of life insurance being a poor place to accumulate wealth. It seems that there is a preponderance of information pointing otherwise. Now, when you are going about the business of building this privatized banking system and you do get beyond what you need, because all the system is going to do is get more and more efficient over the time. 
and you're going to grow and scale. You're going to recapture more interest. That's going to be able to allow you to pay more premiums. And when you get to a point on one policy that you're, you're so capitalized there, you can't pay anymore, you add another policy to your system. Again, it'll be appropriate for you over the course of time. But you can get to where not only are you financing your vehicles, but other family vehicles. And when you've done enough of that, maybe maybe down payments on homes with family members or perhaps even the, the entire deal, financing homes all within the family. Again, this is the infinite banking concept. We could be talking about cars. We could be talking about homes. We could be talking about family vacations, business equipment. In fact, we'll be getting to uh, financing equipment here soon in our book review series. But we could be talking about anything. The point is that there's going to be this natural expansion of your ability to finance with the more interest that you recapture and the more you understand this concept and you more f- you focus on getting more of your capital into premiums, into this privatized banking system over the course of your lifetime. And then, yes, let's throw in there at the end that you also get a death benefit all along the way. You've got a, a guaranteed death benefit and that death benefit can grow. And if you haven't heard me say it yet, I'll say it again because Nash did it several times. He would say, we emphasize on the cash value in these policies, but ultimately you can end up with more death benefit than you otherwise would have been able to be approved for in the beginning because of how you're funding your policy or your system of policy. So folks, we just need to understand that there's a play going on, this play of life, who the characters are in that play. And when you realize that you can account for your own need of finance, that you can become your own banker, it's a completely different paradigm. And it's one where we maintain ownership, where we maintain control, where we don't have to work any harder, take any additional risk. We are the ones that become profitable. It's a beautiful thing. Now, on page 44, we come to the addendum of part three on how to start building your own banking system. And I just want to point out that at this time in Nelson's life, he was not writing business like he had prior, perhaps for a family, but he was not actively writing business as an insurance agent. He was teaching at this time, this this concept. I think that's good to know. He was he was practicing what he was preaching. He wasn't even writing business like he had been. He was just going about and teaching his clients and friends and the common man how to become his own banker. Now, again, let me reiterate that he does show withdrawals in this section. It could be more profitable, even more profitable, if we were talking about policy loans instead of withdrawals. Also, and, and that's because the compounding would not be interrupted on the premiums that have you that you've paid. So when you pay premiums into a policy, and if you only take policy loans, you're never interrupting the compounding, compound interest. Compound interest. compounding of every premium dollar that you've paid. But if you do pay premiums and then you take a policy withdrawal, you are withdrawing some of that premium paid back out. There is an interruption on the compounding of that total premium that has been paid. So just understanding that difference and applying that here could be even more profitable. And again, 
Loans can be a contentious word and idea for some folks. So Nash was just showing the options that you have. Again, this is all about you becoming your own banker. But when you can work past that, because really that that's all that is. Is it possible to owe no man nothing? No, no. Remember, payments are made even from a cash is king. Folks out there, payments are made when you pay cash for something. You're just making payments under the mattress or the coffee can or the savings account or the money market account yourself, to yourself. But is it to yourself? Because you're putting that under a mattress and a mattress doesn't care. And could the house burn? I'm sure. You know, so just all these other factors. And if you put it in a savings account or a money market account and you want to tout the interest that you're earning there, what's the bank making on the money that you have in those accounts? I promise you they're making more than you are. Okay, remember... The consumer pays for everything. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, just Nash says, study a bank's financial statement. You'll see uh, an important relationship, and I'm glad this is in the addendum. From a bank's perspective, deposits are liabilities. That are, so this is really important. That's why this is in the addendum. From a banking perspective, deposits are actually a liability because the bank has said they'll give you some kind of a pittance of uh, an interest on your accounts. So they have to do something with that money. So to them, it's a liability because they have to do something to, 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 to give you the interest that they've said that they would. Whereas when they make loans and they remember they are making multiple loans off of every dollar that's held at the bank, deposited at the bank. They're loaning out in multiples. Those loans are assets for the bank. That's 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 creating compounding for the bank. And again, I don't want to dive back into that that prior that prior study that we've made on conventional banks. Nash just said it was evil. I mean that 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 money didn't exist prior to us signing on the dotted line, and the bank is charging interest on money. That was created out of thin air. Nash would just say that's that's evil. So we do need to recognize that, though. Again, so for my cash is king, folk, this is what I'm tying together. Just remember, my cash is king, folk. They'll, they'll stack the money up in the banks and stuff, too, a lot of the time. Just recognize that for the banks, deposits are liabilities and loans are assets. Okay. Nash said it best. Reread how he said it. But with, with a policy, one difference is a contractual right to access capital. I do not have a contractual right to access capital with a bank. I have to see if they approve of me. I have to provide all the paperwork, you know, promise my firstborn and a kidney and all these different things, the red tape, pay interest and whatnot. Whereas with a an IBC style policy, I have a contractual right to access capital to borrow in a known interest environment. So I don't know what the commercial banks are going to do, but with a policy, I can be entering into for the rest of my life, rest of my life, a known interest environment for my financing. I know I can know what the insurance company is going to charge me. And then, of course, I'm in control of that repayment, when to pay that back, how to pay that back, if to pay that back. And again, I'm saying be an honest banker, but at the end of the day, that's a perfectly collateralized appreciating asset. 
So I have a contractual right to borrow in a known interest environment. And then Nash finishes this section with two hard and fast rules. I mean, he's got five principles that he covers and other things that the human laws. Here's what he said. Number one, capitalization. You cannot be afraid to capitalize your system. Don't be afraid to capitalize. Two, have a repayment plan. Be an honest banker. And, and I like how he says that. Don't make policy loans without making provisions. Provisions. So have a plan. Every situation can be different. Whether we're paying off credit cards, whether we're financing a family vacation, whether we're financing a piece of business equipment for our business, no matter what it is that we're talking about, financing the vehicles in our lives, no matter what it is, we can decide, okay, well, I'm going to pay this back over the next six months. Well, okay, I'm going to pay this back over the next six years. This is going to be what I'm going to pay myself. This is the interest rate I'm going to charge myself above and beyond what I know the insurance company says they, they're going to they're going to charge this this percentage. But I, I value my capital here. I, I'm going to put it here. We control that, but let's just have a plan. Let's get the let's get the peas back on the shelves. Let's not steal the peas. Let's let's not be afraid to capitalize. And then when we do account for that need of finance and we do access capital, let's just have a plan for putting it back and putting it back with a market rate of interest as well. Because that's just going to be growing and expanding our privatized banking system for the next thing that we're going to do. And then that does. It just grows and scales over our lifetime. And again, I'll reiterate something right from Nash. It'll be the most profitable thing that you could choose to do of your lifetime is to become your own banker. Now, one other point that Nash does cover in the addendum here actually came up in a conversation that I had just this week with a prospective client. We were getting to the point where we're talking about her financial situation, what she's doing, what she's working towards, and she let me know that she'd actually had a recent windfall of money, um, partly because she'd had a family member pass away, regrettably. But being that as it may, she had this unanticipated windfall of money, and now she was recently exposed to the idea of infinite banking, and she was wanting to know how that could play into her starting her own privatized banking system. And that's so good. That's so. It was, I enjoy having those types of conversations in that we see that a prior generation did something to prepare for the next. As a father, I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that somebody did that for this young lady. And now she's considering being a good steward, making wise decisions, and becoming your own banker. I mean, what could be better? So Nash talks about having experienced several windfalls. And that's relevant because, well, okay, here you are. You have a privatized banking system. And perhaps you're accessing some or all of what is available to you for financing the things in your life. And especially this becomes more and more relevant over time. As you build a system, you may have pockets, small or large, of empty space where you could be refilling capital back into these policies. And we could talk strategy about what that could look like, especially as you start thinking and acting intergenerationally. But having a windfall, Nash said he experienced it. I've experienced it. This young lady's experienced it. Having a place to store windfalls in this optimal, potentially, of course, tax-free environment 
is a is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. So again, over the course of your lifetime, you're going to be building a privatized banking system. And when windfalls come in life, that means that you can have a place. And there's again, there's a great way to structure what that can look like so that you're prepared for that, realistically prepared for that. To have a proper place to store windfalls. So that, that was a really vital piece, and I just happened to have a good quality conversation this week about that very subject that Nash covers in the book. So again, folks, I've been doing this for eight years. I reread Nash's book. This is so helpful. So that's that's my biggest encouragement to you is to read or reread R. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. So I hope that this has been a helpful and an insightful discussion for you on this section of becoming your own banker. If you would let me know your takeaways down in the comment section below. And if you would like to have a conversation about how to implement the infinite banking concept into your household or your business or your investing, don't hesitate to reach out to us. And I would appreciate it if you would share this information with business partners, friends, family, people that you would like to see win with money. And this has been a great pleasure for me. I look forward to our next conversation. Have a great day. Take care.